always a relief to see uh, when you've preached sort of twice in successive weeks that people have come back. It's, uh, <coughs> there was a, a bishop went to preach at a church. He preached there before. And he was a bit dismayed when he got there and found that there were very, very few people in the congregation. And as he, the service went on and he preached, he got more and more annoyed. And at the end, he stomped to the back. He grabbed the home vicar by the arm. He said, didn't you announce last week I was coming to preach in your church? And the vicar said, no, he said, but you know how word gets out. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're looking at um, St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to chapter 1. I think the verses might appear on the screen. But I'm going to read verses 15 to 23, which go like this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people... I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, three or four years ago, before lockdown, when you could do this kind of thing, uh, Nadine, my wife and I, had uh, three weeks uh, away in France. Uh, that's our kind of summer holiday destination of choice. And we meandered down to the south coast where some kind friends had given us the use of a uh, sort of a holiday bungalow for a few days. And uh, it was just perfect. Um, the bungalow was a bit basic, but the beach nearby was stunning. And, it, you know, it was just this sort of picture postcard, white sands, beautiful blue Mediterranean, uh, found a great place to swim, lovely rocks to jump off. You know, I remember just sort of basking in the sea thinking, can life get any better under the hot Mediterranean sun? After about three or four days, I found at the back of the garage in our friend's uh, place an old... Uh, sort of diver's mask and a snorkel. And I thought, oh, that was great fun. I'll have a go at that. So next time we go to the beach, I put the snorkel and the mask on. Well, you would not believe what was under the sea. Uh, I'd been swimming in these waters for the last several days, but I had no idea the place was teeming with life. There were these amazing sort of shimmering fish, shoals of them, every, just where I'd been swimming. On the, on the sea bed, which had looked just a bit murky to me, there was this incredible sort of exotic garden of, uh, you know, plants waving in the, uh, in, in the, in the waters, and there all kinds of incredible sea creatures sort of moving in and out of them. It was a whole new world that opened up. Um, I, over the next two or three days, I would never swim there in the same way again. Now, even if I hadn't got the mask on and my sight was were clouded by the, by the water, I would always be aware that there was a realm of life, a realm which was full of life. My eyes, if you like, had been opened in a whole new way. You can see the connection. 
with uh, our, our reading. It helps me understand that experience of, you know, having my eyes open to what was there right where I was without me necessarily realizing. It helps me understand what Paul is getting at in this remarkable prayer that he prays for the Ephesian Christians at the end of chapter one of his letter. You know, often, I don't mind you, but often I find that when I pray or where I hear other people pray for themselves, what we often tend to pray is that God would give us more. You know, the substance of our prayers is that God would give us more of himself, more of his spirit, more power, more faith, um, greater gifting, more of anything really. We're aware of our lack and the solution to that seems to us to be getting more. Now, at one level, that's not a bad prayer to pray. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's not what the Apostle Paul prays here for the Ephesians. Um, I guess that if we asked Paul, he might say our problem is not that we don't have enough and that we need more. Our problem is we do not realize what we already have. Because, you see, the the way that Paul begins this letter uh, to the Ephesians is, is quite striking. So, Chapter 1, verse 3, this is how he he begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If we, you know, had Paul at the front and pushed him and asked him, what's the extent uh, of Christ's gift to us? I think he'd say, you've got it all. There is nothing left to give. He has given us all that we need, every spiritual blessing. And, and of course, if you know this letter, the next few verses are just a catalogue of all that God has given us in Christ. Forgiveness, his unmerited grace, an, in, an inheritance with him, um, the gift of his spirit, and so on. And at the end of this opening chapter, Paul then prays, in the light of his knowledge that we've been given everything, this is what he prays. I pray, therefore, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 17, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your hearts might be opened, that you might know. That's really what Paul is saying. Our primary need is to have the eyes of our hearts open so that we begin to appreciate all that God has given us, that we would see what's under the water, as it were. Um, and I suppose having begun in that vein, Paul then does go on to pray for, th- for th- that prayer to be answered in three specific ways. He highlights three things that he wants the Ephesians to lay hold of, three uh, dimensions to his prayer in those final verses. So I thought we might look at that uh, this morning. And the first is this. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, verse 18, so you will know what is the hope of God's calling. Um, it's quite a few years ago now that I learned to drive. I think I was 17 when I had my first driving lesson. And um, I do remember, uh, it was a painful experience. It often is, isn't it? But, but it was particularly painful because after a couple of lessons, um, I was faced with a fairly significant problem. I, I was beginning to get, you know, the how to balance clutch and accelerator and that kind of stuff. But I couldn't quite do that and steer the car in a straight line. The car was going all over the road. I remember it came to my second or third driving lesson. I remember gritting my teeth thinking, I'm really going to get this. I'm going to boss this this time. I'm really going to make sure, because I know that if I'm going to learn to drive, I need to steer straight. So I'm going to 
you know, concentrate really hard. Got behind the wheel, really focused, all over the road. And um, my driving instructor turned to me, and uh, he said, uh, Mr. Parkinson, I think he was the first person who ever called me Mr. Parkinson at 17. It was, felt very grown up. He said, um, I can see what you're doing wrong. He said, you've got your eyes fixed, haven't you, on the bonnet of the car? Of course I have, I said. You know, if I tip my eyes off the bonnet, goodness knows where the car will end up. I've got to make sure, it, you know. No, 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 he says, you don't look at the bonnet. You look at the middle distance, look at the road ahead where you're, where you're heading. Well, that sounded like stupid advice to me. But he was a driving instructor. And I thought I ought to humor him. So I did. I looked at the road ahead, and blow me, the car went in a straight line. And it's a principle. Of course, we all learned it, didn't we? If you, want to, if you want to go straight, you look at where you're going, and the kind of car follows. Years later, reflecting on that, it struck me there's a powerful spiritual principle there. If we want to steer a good course in the present then we need to have our eyes fixed on where we are heading. And not just our own sort of personal future, but the future that is ours in Christ. Um, Leslie Newbegin, uh, whom I quoted last week, great Christian missiologist, was fond of saying there is a forward tilt to the Christian faith. That is, as Christians, we are people who steer a course by looking at where we are heading, which for him meant the last page of history, the the place that history is heading to. In fact, already in this letter, Paul has talked about that. So he talks in verse 9 of this chapter that, about the fact that God has made known to those who belong to him the mystery of his will, his good purpose, which is, verse 10, to sum up all things in Christ, things in heaven and earth. The life that we live is heading, it's not aimless as the world would have us believe, and it's certainly not about our own individual sort of purposes or destiny. It's about heading to the place where Jesus will be revealed as the Lord that he truly is, the one who is all in all. History concludes with Jesus being revealed as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above every name. Everything is, is, is united under his lordship. That's the end of history. And when Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts might be open, that we might know the hope of his calling, that's really what he's talking about, because our calling is tied up with him. Our calling is to belong to him and to share with him in that eternal future. You know, the, the calling of humankind is to be stewards of the creation that God has established. And although we forfeited that, and fallen away from his purposes. One day, all that will be restored and redeemed, and we will share with him in uh, stewardship over the renewed, restored creation. That's our hope. When all will be well, when God be will be revealed as he is. And if we want to live well in the here and now, we do not look at our current circumstances, the mess that we are in, the front of the bonnet. We we lift our eyes to where history is heading. That is what sustains us. I mean, some of the great songs, the great spirituals that were sung by those who have experienced oppression throughout human history, but who have a hope in Christ, are stirring because they lift our eyes away from the circumstances of our current life and remind us that one day all will be well. And when we understand that... Um, that God will be revealed as Lord, that his lordship will be made known in every circumstance of human existence. That's the thing 
that strengthens us uh, to navigate our way through what the Apostle Paul in another letter calls these momentary and light afflictions. They might be significant. They might feel crushing at one level, but actually, in the light of eternity, in the light of the hope uh, that we um, uh, have in Christ, they are uh, momentary. Uh, at the moment, I am being bombarded on my um, Instagram feed with photos of um, people with ripped bodies uh, in gyms, uh, men, um, uh, largely because I, I think two or three weeks ago, I actually looked at uh, a, a couple, uh, I, I love the gym, and it was about how to do particular exercises uh, the right way and the wrong way. Well, obviously, Instagram has picked that up, and now I'm every day being uh, sent all these things. Uh, and of course, several of them are before and after. Uh, this is what you can be like, and this is what you're probably like, you know, sort of thing. Uh, and it's quite interesting, because actually, uh, you know, now that I am over 30, and um, not quite as young as I was, um, I'm striving to sort of, lay, you know, keep hold of certain things. And, um, but actually, there's that enticing picture. This is what you could be like, you know. In a sense, that's what Paul is giving. This is what we will be like. Not by virtue of our own exercise, but by virtue of what God has done. This is where we are heading. I pray, he says, that you might hold on to that hope of your calling. This is written to people you know, who are living at a precarious time uh, in a pagan culture with a brutal, tyrannical uh, emperor where to be a Christian was a risky business, uh, where things are tough. And yet, we hold on to this hope of our calling. And linked to that, secondly, Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts might be opened, that they might know, verse, 19, uh, verse 18, um, that what are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance amongst his people. There are probably two dimensions to this. On the one hand, uh, Paul is um, alluding to uh, us as God's inheritance. That taps into the, the notion I already um, spoke of, the fact that um, the church in Scripture is, is often described as God's inheritance, the people who belong to Him, the people who he, whom He calls to share in His glory, in His uh, task of, of stewarding His uh, creation. We are those who... Um, are given worth by him, given a dignity, given a calling. Uh, and this may well be a reference to the restoration of the calling of hum humanity to glorify God, to exercise that stewardship that he's entrusted uh, to us. But equally, it might just be a reference to that which God has put at our uh, disposal in terms of, as it were, his heavenly riches. Uh, that is, uh, we have an inheritance that God uh, gives us by virtue of our uh, belonging to him. And Paul is praying that we might understand something of, you know, what has been given us in Christ. It's all the stuff that he's been um, expounding in the earlier verses of that chapter. Um, I was, for a number of years, um, vicar of uh, a church in a place called Saltburn. Some of you might know it, up in the, on the North, North Yorkshire coast. And um, uh, I had some 
glorious uh, years there. About halfway through my time uh, as vicar there, I got a phone call one afternoon from a lawyer. Always a bit disconcerting, you know. Um, anyway, he said, I- I'm ringing to tell you that you, your church has been left uh, a legacy. And he, he said, let me tell you about this lady who, who's, who's left it. She was 96. Um, she had lived most of her life in a colliery village in County Durham, but she'd been born in Saltburn. And um, her uh, father had been the mines manager of the Ironstone mine. Saltburn was uh, grew up really around the Ironstone mining uh, that was so much part of that of, of Cleveland in the Victorian era, um, which led to the iron and steel industry forming in Middlesbrough. Anyway, her dad had been in the um, mining business, but the mines had closed in the 1920s. The family had migrated to Durham, where he was on the Durham coal field. Anyway, she died. She lived in this two-up, two-down miner's cottage in this little colliery village. He said that she was an interesting lady, uh, 96, lived this very modest life, bought her first vacuum cleaner when she was 90, he told me. Uh, And um, anyway, so he painted this picture of this you know, I thought we're not going to get much out of this then, are we? You know, obviously, uh, he said, you want to know how much she's left. She's divided it equally between um, the church where she worshipped in Durham and the two, two local churches in East Cleveland. Uh, she left a quarter of a million pounds, he said. Uh, refurbished our church hall, ultimately. Um, and he said, uh, the thing is, uh, he said, she, her, she never married. Her two brothers married, had no children. They're both dead. Uh, all the family money had funneled down to her, but she would never spend it. She always said, it's not my money, it's the family's money. She was the family. There was no more family left. It was all, And I, I felt really sad. I mean, she could have bought a better vacuum cleaner or gone on a, <laughs> gone on a cruise. Or, you know, it, 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 it just felt sad that she had so much, but didn't feel she could touch it. And then, of course, as I reflected more, you kind of think, and how often are we like that? We have, not materially, but spiritually, we have in the bank so much. A rich inheritance from God. All, every spiritual blessing, all that we need to do all that God calls us into. God has put at our disposal everything we need to fulfill all that he calls us into. And our task is simply to draw on that inheritance. And of course, by His Spirit who is given to us, uh, we have, as it, uh, an inheritance is often something we receive in the future, but in a sense, we've been given the down payment, uh, all that we need uh, for life in the here and now. And I suppose that ties into the third thing that Paul prays for. Uh, that they might, we might know the hope of God's calling, the riches of God's glorious inheritance, but what is the surpassing greatness of his power in us or towards us who believe? And Paul goes on to say that the power that we have received from him is the same power which raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of God's uh, uh, dwelling. That is, you know, resurrection power is in those of us who uh, believe. 
Many of you will know that the New Testament was written in, in the Greek language. The Greek word for power is a great word. It's the word dunamis, from which we get our English words dynamo or dynamite. You know, it's great to think, isn't it? We've got dynamite in our boots. We've got the, the, overwhel- the surpassing, you know, greatness of God's power in us by virtue of His Spirit who indwells us. And Paul prays, that the Ephesians would have the eyes of their hearts open, that they might know that. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead has brought us from the death of sin to life with Christ. So this is power, firstly, as it were, to um, overcome all that is an obstacle to our fellowship with God. You know, if we wrestle with, an, with notions of unworthiness or failure or whatever, Paul says, sack that. Actually, all that we need to get us over the, 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 the hurdle, the barrier to fellowship with God is overcome by the power of God. It's power, secondly, to serve Him in the power of the Spirit. So often, you know, we feel, well, I do, in a weak, tongue-tied uh, sometimes, uh, not sure how to um, bear witness to Him or feeling inadequate when it comes to serving him. Don't worry, says Paul. Just pray that the eyes of your heart might be open, that you might know the full extent of the power that God's given you to do all that he's calling you into. And then, you know, I suppose thirdly, it's power to live a holy life. I doubt that I'm the only one in church this morning who feels that they battle with the same temptations week in, week out, year in, year out. You know, um, I really thought that uh, when I was much younger that by the time I got to 64, I would have, you know, conquered some of the attitudes uh, that I still see lurking deep within or the sort of learned patterns of behavior and so on. We fall in different ways. Uh, and sometimes we think it's, it's really up to us just to summon up a bit more effort, a bit more strength of character Um, actually, Paul says it's about drawing on the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that can actually overcome in us those things which spoil us and keep us from uh, living the kind of life that God intended us to live. Power to live a holy life. In his uh, book on the Holy Spirit, More, Simon Ponsonby puts it this way. He says, we are promised not just a trickle, but the immeasurable greatness of God's power. We are literally clothed with that power, he says. Christians filled with power will be explosive. They'll make a noise and an impact. Their words, presence, and lives will change things. It's this fullness of power that Paul wants us to enter into. It's great, isn't it? That's exactly what God has. That's why God gives us the gift of his spirit, the gift of his power, so that we can be the people he longs us to be and do the things that God is calling us into. And again, let me remind us, it's not about asking God for more as if he hasn't given us what we need. It's asking God to open the eyes of our hearts that we might appreciate the full extent of his investment in all those who belong to him in his church. God has demonstrated the nature of his power, through the raising of Jesus from the dead. And we experience that same power in our lives to transform our own spiritual deadness, our moral deadness, our inability in so many different ways. 
And then, I mean, what a glorious way Paul finishes. He talks about the, the, his, the church being his body, the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. The, the picture that Paul has of us is of the fullness of Christ being reflected in our common life. A people who live in hope, who entertain that hope, who allow it to illuminate everything that we do and all that we are. People who, because we entertain that hope, are an infectious people. You know, people are drawn because actually we live in a world which is devoid of hope. People who have a strong sense of our identity, of who we're called to be in Christ. And, uh, and, and more than that, who appreciate um, what it is to, to share with him in, in his work. That too is attractive and infectious, but more than that, people who are empowered by him to do all that he uh, calls us into. I wonder where you sit with this today. I wonder if your longing deep down is, is for more. Uh, I've got really good news for you. If that's your repeated prayer, you've got it all. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We just need the eyes of our hearts opening that we might access. I mean, Paul prays that you might know this. And when he's talking about knowing, he's not talking about knowing, you know, intellectually, but knowing in a sort of an experiential way, knowing in such a way that I live in it, I inhabit it. It suffuses every part of my life. And I reckon that if Paul were here this morning, he'd pray the same thing for us, that God would open the eyes of our hearts. So I thought we might pray that for one another. And... Um, if, I always find it helpful to stand at this point. If, you, if that's uncomfortable, do remain seated. But if you'd like to stand, why don't you stand? I'm going to simply ask God by His Spirit to come and, and move among us, to stir, to open the eyes of our hearts, first of all, that we might know deep within. So why don't we just quietly begin to ask Him by His Spirit to come and move in us and release something. Unlock our hearts and minds. I talked about putting a mask on to see. Sometimes God needs to take, as it were, scales off our eyes that we might see. But Lord, we just want to bless you that you have blessed us so richly. Thank you, Jesus, that in you we have every spiritual blessing that we need in the heavenly realms. That you've given us all. You've not hurled anything back. But we confess, Lord, that we need to enter more fully into all that you've given us. And so, Lord, would you first of all open the eyes of our hearts that we might know. Lord, where there's a deficiency in our understanding, where we've looked away, where we have not had the faith to believe, would you come and restore that, Lord? Come, Spirit of God, now. Come stir up your work in us. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord.